Good morning. Today is Sunday, the ninth day of October. Have you ever been told a joke and no one laughed? Maybe your listeners needed a little encouragement to understand just how funny your joke was. Maybe if they heard other people laughing, they would laugh too. That's the idea of the television laugh track, and that's the subject of the 108th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. You know, there's a new TV show called Kevin Can Wait, starring Kevin James. Kevin plays another in a long line of man-child-type characters that audiences are supposed to find appealing. On one episode, Kevin's wife brings home hamburgers to everyone. When Kevin looks into the bag of food, he says, Well, actually, there's only four. Well, okay, you guys can split one. That's the joke, you see. Kevin is such a large man that he wants to eat off four burgers himself and doesn't care anything about his family. And guess what? He eats all four before his family has a chance to even eat one. That must be funny because the audience was laughing, and I'm glad they were, or I wouldn't have even realized that was a joke. That's the idea of a laugh track, to let you at home know what is supposed to be funny, to let you know what you're supposed to laugh at. And that's the subject of today's show, and it was suggested by a listener, Joe Williston. Thanks, Joe. You know, when I first looked at this suggestion, I thought, well, that isn't really the type of thing I do on Coffee with Jeff. I mean, I usually talk about an event or a person and tell the story in sort of chronological order. But then I thought, just talking about a subject like the laugh track rather than an event might be something different to do. So let's take a stab at it. I think this is a fun one. And anyway, all right, looks like we got some UFO news. The headline reads, UFO sighting, NASA images show Martian walled city ruins. This is from a site called Headlines in Global News. I'll have a link to the story on the episode notes for today's Coffee with Jeff episode, but you shouldn't really go there. It's really an irritating sight with ads that pop up and video ads that just start playing with the audio blaring, and not just one either. I turned one off and another one started almost minutes later. I find all that irritating, but anyway, back to this ruins of a Martian walled city. It's a blurry photograph of a Mars mountain, and yes, if you use your imagination and perhaps have a few beers in your system, you might make out the walls of a city. But it isn't. Look, if you look at enough pictures of rocks, you're bound to see things in them that look familiar. Remember that face on Mars? A camera just happened to snap a picture of a hill with shadows in just the right way to make it look like a face? It's called pareidolia. Pareidolia is when The brain tricks the eyes into seeing familiar objects such as faces or animals in textures, patterns, or clouds. But this story ends with the sentence. But again, could such a long parade of images for so many theorists be due to pareidolia? 
I can answer that. The answer is yes. Anyway, why don't I tell you the story of a machine called the Laugh Box that created the sounds that you probably have heard many times in your life. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Hey, McCunas, you asleep? McCunas, you asleep? Hey, McCunas! Shut up! <laughs> you really think the world is wound? Because if it ain't wound, we're in for an awful wet down. <laughs> well, I guess I'll have some food. Now get this, a man's lying on the operating table and he's about to go under and he says, Doc, I'm really nervous. This is my first operation. The doctor replies, I know how you feel. This is my first operation too. Have you ever heard of the Hank McCoon Show? Well, the Hank McCoon Show was on TV in the 1950s, and it was similar to the Larry Sanders Show, as it contained a show within a show, you know? If you've never heard of it, that's not surprising. It was canceled after three months. And the reason why I bring up the Hank McCoon Show is that it's notable for being the first television program to incorporate a laugh track. There are two theories of why the laugh track was incorporated into TV programming. The first is that, well, before radio and TV, all performance art was done live in front of an audience. But radio and television is more of an intimate thing, you know, just you or you and your family being entertained in the privacy of your own home. But the producers of early TV shows wanted to give the people at home the feeling of a live performance, even though most shows couldn't be filmed in front of a live audience, especially those done with just one camera. So they would add audio so the people at home would feel like they were in a theater. The second theory of why we have a laugh track is that the producers thought that audiences were just too stupid and didn't know when to laugh. They needed encouragement to laugh. Of course, it isn't just used with shows that couldn't be filmed in front of a live audience. Shows that were actually filmed in front of a live audience still had sounds added. This was called sweetening the sound. You see, if a show didn't get the laughs or applause that the producers hoped for, well, then a little extra laughter might make the silly people at home think that the jokes were a lot funnier than they actually were. To be fair, though, sometimes adding a laugh might be necessary. Take the case in which an actor blows his lines three or four times. The first time might have got a big laugh, but by the fourth time, well, the audience isn't laughing anymore. So to make up for this, the sound editors could just add the laughter that would have been there if the joke was done okay the first time. And this concept is nothing new. It might go back at least 500 years. 
It is said by historians that audience plants were in the crowds at Shakespeare performances in the 16th century. They knew when they were supposed to laugh and applaud, and this encouraged the rest of the audience to follow along. But who is responsible for creating the modern idea of a laugh track to enhance the sound of a television program? Well, in 1946, a man named Jack Mullen bought a Magnaphone magnetic tape recorder. And Bing Crosby would use that to pre-record his shows so he wouldn't have to perform it live or do it a second time for the West Coast audiences. On one of these shows, a hillbilly comic named Bob Burns told some jokes that got a huge laugh. But his performance had to be cut from the show as he went on way too long. Jack, on the advice of a screenwriter, saved some of the recordings of the laughter. When, a few weeks later, they had a show that contained some jokes that were not very funny, those laughs were added. And so, they say, this was the birth of the laugh track. Now, that might have been the first use of a laugh track, but the father of this technique was a man named Charlie. And if you've ever wondered why, in all those early sitcoms, the laughter all seemed the same... That's because they were all done by one guy, Charles Roland Douglas. Charles Douglas was born on January 2nd, 1910. He was the son of an electrical engineer for the silver mining industry. After attending the University of Nevada, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, he briefly worked in radio before joining the Navy during World War II, where he worked in Washington with engineers developing shipboard radio systems. After the war, he returned to college for a short time, and then he worked as a broadcast engineer at CBS. He was responsible for everything from recording sound levels during production to adjusting them in post-production. He began to notice inconsistencies in live audience sounds and began looking for ways to fix it. He started developing techniques for sweetening the sound, like when the audience didn't laugh or applaud enough. Extra laughter or clapping was added. Or he could de-sweeten the sounds, like when the audience reaction was inappropriate or went on too long. He began working on what he called the laugh box. And laugh was spelled L-A-F-F. He started bringing home tapes of television shows and spent hours to find clips of isolated sounds, laughing, applause, anything that he could use to enhance the TV program. He would then splice these together and create tape loops. Many of his sounds are thought to have come from two sources. A show Marcel Marceau did sometime in the mid-50s, which was perfect because Marceau was a mime, and the only sounds were from the audience. And then there was the Red Skelton show. Red would do mime sketches, which again were perfect for isolating audience sounds. Now, there are no records of actually where each sound came from, so this is only a guess. While working for CBS, he built a prototype laugh machine that consisted of a large wooden wheel 28 inches in diameter with magnetic tape glued to the outer edge, containing mild laughs. Every time he'd push the button, it would rotate once, playing that laugh over. But when he left CBS, they demanded that he leave the machine behind which he did so, but then within a matter of months, it began to fall apart. Charlie had something a lot bigger in mind, and he ended up building a large box about two feet tall with keys in the front that played like a keyboard. It was sort of a organ of audience reactions. 
Each one of the 32 keys played a sound. By pushing a key, a loop of tape would play one of 320 reactions that were on 32 tape loops. They were belly laughs, titters, shrieks of surprise, oohs and ahs, and even uh-ohs. There was a pedal on the bottom to fade out the laughter or to increase the volume if needed. The machine quickly became a huge success and only Charlie Douglas knew how it worked. The box was his musical instrument and he was the only one who knew how to push the right keys. Comedy writer Mel Diamond, who worked in the early days of television, talked about how Milton Berle loved the laugh track. Mel said, That machine was his answer to every prayer he had. He didn't need the fucking audience anymore, which he didn't like anyway because he couldn't depend on them. To me, the machine is as fraudulent as the phony quiz shows, but the comedians saw it as the answer to their worst fears. Comedian George Burns said, Television executives insisted that a comedy show had a laugh track, so the audiences at home would know when to laugh. I told them I didn't need one on our show because the audience knew when something funny happened. They still insisted that we use a laugh track. Originally, the use of the machine went unnoticed as it was used sparingly on live shows like the Jack Benny program. Just a little bit to enhance the audio. But around the end of the 1950s and early 60s, the use of pre-recording shows on videotape gave the networks the ability to edit and therefore play around with the sound. It wasn't long before networks realized that it was so much easier not to even have an audience at all but fake it with the laugh box. And more and more shows began using the single camera technique, which is more like making a movie. And in those situations, having an audience just wasn't possible. And then there were shows like Leave it to Beaver that had many scenes outside, again making a live audience just not practical. Yet the networks felt that they needed the sound of laughter to be part of the show. But you might ask, is the laugh track really necessary? Does it really help the show's ratings? Well, that's what the executives at CBS in 1965 asked themselves, and they decided to test just that. There was a new light-hearted comedy about World War II prisoners in a German prison camp called Hogan's Heroes. They showed it to test audiences with and without laughter. The one without the added reactions failed, while the one with the laughter succeeded. And from that moment on, CBS ordered all their comedies to have a laugh track. In fact, by 1960, every sitcom on American TV used Douglas and his machine to sweeten their show. And he was the only game in town. He was very secretive about the way he worked and how he did what he did. After getting instructions from a producer, he would go and work out of sight without anyone else at the studio present. Now, strangely, Charlie wanted to expand the use of his laugh box and approached the film industry to see if they wanted to add these sounds to their film comedies. Now, adding a laugh track to Hollywood film comedies might seem like a far-fetched idea, but believe it or not, it was actually attempted. The 1965 film Cat Baloo actually had laughs added, but this performed very poorly with test audiences, so these laughs were removed before the film's release. Adding a laugh track to film just doesn't make any sense because it's way too obvious that a film wasn't filmed or couldn't be filmed in front of an audience. This is true, but then, I have to ask, 
why is the laugh track acceptable in cartoons? The Rocky and Bowinkle show, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, and many others had Charlie's laughs added. Even the Pink Panther show, which was mostly made up of short films that were created for use in movie theaters, had a laugh track added before they were shown on TV. And as more children's programming required sweetening, Charlie began adding kitty laughs to his laugh box. Charlie had such a monopoly on a service that by 1970 he began increasing his rates, and this was a problem for the lower budget programming, like the work done by Hanna-Barbera and Rankin-Bass. They solved this by extracting the laughs that Charlie had added on their previous shows. Watching shows like Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, The Harlem Globetrotters, and Josie and the Pussycats after 1971, you can definitely tell the inferior quality of the laugh track, which sounded almost metallic and tinny. There were many attempts to come up with alternatives to the laugh track for shows that could not be performed in front of a live audience. Both Don Knotts and Andy Griffith were against the use of the laugh track for the Andy Griffith show. So instead, they would show the completed episode to a live audience and record their reactions and add it to the soundtrack of the show before airing. But after a few shows, it was determined that this practice just wasn't cost-effective, and eventually they came back to Douglas to do his magic. However, the idea of showing a taped episode to a live audience would become common practice later on. The show MASH was an interesting story. The show's co-creator Larry Gelbert didn't want a laugh track. Just like the actual Korean War, he once remarked. CBS, though, insisted on a laugh track, and eventually they compromised. There would be no laugh track during the operation scenes, but a laugh track could be used for the rest of the episode. But after the sixth season, the laugh track was used less and less, and sometimes not at all, as the show went from a straight comedy to more of a comedy drama. And in the eleventh season, the last season, the laugh track was almost entirely eliminated. They're a lie, said Gelbert in a 1992 interview. You're telling an engineer when to push a button to produce a laugh from people who don't exist. It's just so dishonest. The biggest shows when we were on the air were All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, both of which were taped before a live studio audience where the laughter made sense. But our show was a film show, supposedly shot in Korea. So the question I asked the network was, who were these laughing people? Where did they come from? Funny, though, the laugh track was left off of many international versions of the show. And at one time, an episode was accidentally aired with the laugh track in the UK. And viewers complained. One critic said of the laugh track, Can laughter is intrusive at the best of times, but with a program like MASH, it's downright unbearable. The network did apologize. On the DVD release of MASH, viewers could have their choice to watch it with or without the laughter added. By 1970, most TV viewers were aware that the audience reactions they were hearing were fake. So in response, taping in front of a studio audience returned. All in the Family was famous for being one of the first shows to do away with Charlie's service and actually used real audience responses. Norman Lear took pride in the fact that canned laughter was never used. The laughter heard in every episode was genuine. 
So the term, this show was filmed in front of a live studio audience, was added at the beginning or the end of many sitcoms. This was created in an effort to tell the home viewer that the laughs they were hearing were real. But that doesn't mean, of course, that some sitcoms still didn't sweeten the sound with pre-recorded laughter. Of course, filmed before a live studio audience is sort of redundant, isn't it? Live audience as opposed to what? A dead audience? Shows like Cheers, Friends, Seinfeld, and How I Met Your Mother were probably the last successful comedies to employ a laugh track. By the 1990s, the use of canned laughter had pretty much died away, but not entirely. Shows such as 30 Rock, Arrested Development, Curb Your Enthusiasm, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, New Girl, Simpsons, Family Guy, and many more all did fine without a laugh track. In 2010, a guest on PBS's Antique Roadshow brought in Charlie Douglas's Laugh Box, and he said he got that from a storage locker that he had purchased in an auction. The machine still worked, and it was appraised for about $10,000. Lucky him. Charles Roland Charlie Douglas retired in 1980, and he died of pneumonia on April 8, 2003 at the age of 93. He was married and had two sons. Like, look, here's some more of those crazy voodoo dolls. And they look just like us. She's trying to scare us off. Well, it won't work. That voodoo stuff is just a bunch of phony baloney. Bye, voodoo. Yo, I've been voodooed. <laughs> Hold it, Shaggy. All you did was back into this fork. <laughs> 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 Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. You know, in many cases, I have no problem with the use of canned laughter or applause when editing a sitcom. I mean, if the natural sounds of the audience get screwed up through the editing process, as odd as it may sound, you may have to fake the audience sounds to make it sound more natural, more like it actually did during the production. The problem with things like a laugh track is when it's overused or abused, and many times it was. Like shows like the Munsters and things from the 60s where the the laughing and applause gets out of hand and it gets almost irritating after a while. You hear those jokes and you say, what what are they laughing at? That That was stupid. Are they, is the audience that dumb? No, the fact is there was just no audience there. Like I said, like, like everything in life, there's a place for it, but it also can be abused. And by the early 1970s, the laugh track was definitely being abused. I guess the, the oddest part of the story is that the creator of the laugh box, Charlie Douglas, held on to his invention for so long without any competition. You would think somebody else would have saw what he was doing and tried to come up with their own machine or... Maybe they didn't. No one was successful at it. I mean, it was a pretty ingenious machine, you know, this analog machine in which you would push a button and it would play a tape loop of a, a sound effect. One more thing before I go, I'd like to apologize to all Kevin James fans out there everywhere. If you like Kevin James and you like his sitcoms, his old one and now his new one, 
hey, more power to you. I mean, he does what he does, and that's fine. And as long as people like that kind of thing, that's fine too. Personally, the few clips I've watched from his new show seems like every bad sitcom joke that I've heard a thousand times over the last 40 years. So, um, but that's me. That's me. You know, if you enjoy this show, you can thank all those wonderful people out there that sponsor the Psycon Network. If you'd like to, I don't know, perhaps feel good about yourself and you'd like to help us pay for the costs of running a podcasting network, you might think about becoming a Patreon. And you can do that at our, at our Patreon page. Just go to psycon.fm for more information. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. And thank you to all of you who already support the network. And speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our network and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. If you want to hear two people say the word aardvark a lot, then you should listen to the latest episode of Half Pints and Whole Notes. I began to wonder if Josh and Rebecca had been sampling their beer a little early before the recording of the show. You know, Half Pints and Whole Notes is the only show on the internet to feature beer and music. You know, you can check out this show and many others over at SciCon. And you can email me at any time with a suggestion like today's episode. I'm at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Coffee with Jeff being one word. You can complain, you can say hi, you can tell me about your day. I do answer every email I get. And you can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is again Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And there's a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would, I would love you to join. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. You know, it's been like a year since anybody's left me a review over at iTunes. What are you waiting for? I know I have more than seven listeners. And all the links that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. Joe for suggesting today's story. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song. And to everybody who listens to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff.
dawn of just new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Thank you.